welcome to the podcast for St. Andrew's Community United Methodist Church, a loving, caring, overcoming community of faith where our mission is making disciples of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't hamburgers, 
uh, a grilled chicken one night over the weekend, so it wasn't that I, I honestly don't remember, but there was some meat on my <laughs> that I had, had grilled. So must have been good. Must be real good. And, and I, I know this may sound like it's meaningless talk, but again, uh, we're, we're in this series, Creating the Church, and we've been looking at Acts 2.42 for the last three weeks on what are those elements? What are the commitments that the early church made? And of course, the first week it was the apostles' teaching, and uh, we talked about who the apostles were, those that knew Jesus, those who had seen him alive and well. They saw him, or at least they knew of his death, but they saw him on the other side of the resurrection. Today, apostleship is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to just a few individuals. And what they were teaching about was Jesus, giving the great understanding of this is who Jesus is, and this is how Jesus was the fulfillment of these hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that all pointed to a singular Messiah and how it was that Jesus fulfilled every one of those promises. Then we looked at uh, the, uh, what was that, the Apostles' Teaching, the Fellowship, Fellowship, Koinonia, and Koinonia, and how it is that we live together in fellowship. And then this week we come to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper. And, and I think that, again, probably how it went in the early church was people went to worship in the temple because most of these people in Acts chapter 2 are, in fact, Jews that now believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so when they went to worship, they went to the temple. That's what they did. That was where they went. And after they went to the temple, then they went to each other's homes and shared in meals. It was a sign of their social and their spiritual solidarity as people of faith. That was the old custom that they had from the, the Jewishness of their experience. But then the newness of the experience, the new part then, was bringing in the Lord's Supper. And I think what happened was they got together and they had that coin in, the air in people's homes while they were eating, and maybe even after they were eating, the apostles were present to begin to teach them about this newfound faith in Christ. And then following that, they would close by celebrating together the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in, in our tradition, we have uh, two sacraments. Of course, baptism is one, and to be a member of the church, you do experience the sacrament of baptism. But Holy Communion was another way we unpacked. Uh, some of what that meant and how it is that we actually approach the Lord's table. So, Jeff, I'm curious, in, in your experience growing up, you uh, went to a church, another Christian tradition, you went to a Baptist church, I believe, growing up. Yep. Uh, did y'all have any fellowship around the table that you can remember? So we always did uh, a Wednesday night, no matter what it was. Uh, Year-round, we had a uh, Wednesday night dinner mm -hmm. as, as a church. They met in the gym. Uh, everybody would come. I'd hang out with all my friends. Uh, first, met with family at first until, you know, we got established. Right. We got to eat with my friends and family there. And, uh, you know, um, some of the smaller groups uh, would meet, uh, kind of like what some of our small groups currently do. And uh, every, you know, two, maybe a quarter of a year, uh, we'd, we'd all get out and go to a restaurant and, you know, fellowship that way. One of the things I remember growing up, uh, we didn't do Wednesday night. Sunday night was our time together. We would have our youth group at 5 o'clock, and that always included what we call snack supper, which, you know, it's always like, man, we should to get more food, but you have to remember, it's a snack. Right? <laughs> supper, it's, it's not just your supper. And after our youth ministry at 7 o'clock, we actually did still have uh, Sunday evening worship in our church. 
And I always remember that following worship, that was when we really experienced what I would call table fellowship. Uh, a lot of us, there was a Dairy Queen just about a couple of blocks, maybe a block from our church, and we would walk or we would drive to the Dairy Queen and we would eat, you know, because growing ambitious young teenagers, we were still hungry after church. Uh, we always made sure nobody did without, you know, something. Well, I don't have any money. It's like, hey, we'll buy you some french fries or something because that was important. And there, then there was a park right across the street from the Dairy Queen, and we would go over there and play, you know, and, and be after dark. Uh, and we just enjoyed being around each other. We had, you know, experienced the teaching, but we saw that sharing meals was central to our experience. You know, if our church was small enough that we still had covered dish dinner, you know, and just remember the great times of fellowship that were shared when we eat. And, of course, here at St. Andrews, our experience is probably a little bit more like what Jeff experienced growing up whenever we had midweek. We don't do it every Wednesday night, but we do it on Wednesday nights, and I believe uh, Pastor Josh is actually scheduling that right now. I forget how many weeks he has scheduled. I want to say it's 10, but it may be 12. I think I think 12. Because don't quote me. We, we usually have more Wednesday nights scheduled during the uh, fall than we do in the spring, because spring, you know, through winter, once you get spring break, and after that, people are ready to get outside because the weather is getting a little warmer. But we have the meal like you did, and then we have our discipleship groups, different classes that are offered, which uh, is a great time. We're sharing in meals. We're having that kind of teaching. But again, it included the Lord's Supper, and, and that's where a lot of the sermon was focused, and that's kind of what I want us to think about and focus on right now, is the Lord's Supper was a new thing, and different churches have different understandings of what that means. Different churches actually celebrate that a different amount of times. Uh, Catholic Church, Episcopal Church, Lutheran Church, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, you know, those five Christian traditions all have Holy Communion every week when they have worship. Uh, there are some Methodist churches that will practice that some, but most United Methodist churches, I want to say, do it the first Sunday of the month. That's kind of our traditional thing. There's nothing biblical about that. There's nothing that in our book of discipline that says that's how we have to do it. Uh, John Wesley, chief founder of Methodism, actually said you ought to do it as much as you can. Uh, there have been seasons here at St. Andrews where during the season of Lent, we have served it every Sunday, but we've only served it every Sunday for the early service. It was like, if you want to receive Holy Communion, come to the 815 service, and that's when uh, we serve it. It was easy there in Acts chapter 2. Fellowship, apostles' teaching, sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and of course, prayer, which we'll talk about next week. But we see in the letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth, the letter we call 1 Corinthians, that Paul really wears them out because the Jewishness of what was going on is actually changed. And it makes sense that it changed because Paul's ministry was not primarily to Jews to convince them that they needed to come to faith in Christ, that Christ was the Messiah. For the Corinthians, most of them were Gentiles, and that's how Paul really saw himself, was as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so all of a sudden, you've got non-Jewish people coming to faith in Christ, and they're saying, here's a supper we share. But they didn't have that same sense of solidarity. They didn't have that same sense 
koinonia that they had grown up with is all coming from the same religious background, if you will. And when you read the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, he's actually pretty harsh. He gets on and he says, look, it's not really the Lord's Supper you're sharing about because some of y'all are not really thinking of the poor that come. You're just eating all the food yourself and you're not saving anything. And uh, to be quite honest, some of them were getting drunk. Uh, and so he said, don't you have a home to eat in? Don't you have a home to drink in? Why do you do this and exclude other people? And this is part of our understanding as United Methodists of why we include everybody, why everybody is invited to the Lord's table. But the key part was when he says, so quit coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. If you do this, you are eating and drinking condemnation and judgment on yourself by refusing to acknowledge the sacredness of this moment. And so our practice is that whenever we celebrate Holy Communion, we invite people to join in a corporate prayer of confession of our sin. And as you might guess, it's a little generic in the sense, but it's also somewhat specific when it says, you know, we have failed to be an obedient church. We just have to admit that sometimes as the people of God, we don't always do those things that God wants us to do because we're, we're sinful people being created to be, you know, a new creation in Christ Jesus. Um, but another part of the prayer is we have not loved God with our whole heart. Honestly, that's when I really get in trouble. I think that's when a lot of people get in trouble is when we stop loving God with our whole heart because we're too busy loving those other things that are not godly because we find pleasure in them or we think we find at least a temporary fulfillment in them. It says we have not heard the cry of the needy. And honestly, we try to do that. We try to hear the cry of the needy. That was one of the great things about what we do with our sixth graders in vacation Bible school is we uh, take them into mission experiences. I, I loved when we went to regional food bank. It's actually one of my favorite places to go. I, every time I go there, it's like, I need to do this more. And part of that is because they do, they do such a good job and they organize it so well. And part of what they say is, you know, one of every four Oklahomans go to bed hungry at night. It's just a staggering statistic. It, it really is. I mean, here in America's heartland where we're producing wheat for all, all the world to eat, and we've got people going to bed hungry at night. It, I mean, it's a staggering thing. And I always want to grab those children and say, everybody get in a group of four. Now, pick somebody to be your spokesperson, and, you know, they're, they're going to do that. And they're going to say, okay, this is a person that doesn't get to eat at night. And that's why when the sharing of meals is an important thing. And so we repent of those things. We have this prayer of repentance that we pray so that we're not saying, oh, yeah, you know, we got it all together. You know, anybody that thinks Christians have it all together, listen to our prayer of confession because that is what we're saying is we do not have it all together. And, of course, after we pray the corporate prayer, which a lot of times every month I'm the one that writes those. Uh, you know, the one we used this past Sunday was part of the traditional ritual of the United Methodist Church. But a lot of times knowing what I have preached and what we need to be paying attention to, I will write those prayers, but then we always invite people to have that personal moment of confession. Now, I'm, I'm curious, Jack, when, whenever we do that, you know, whether it was me or Stephanie or Laura, you know, whoever might be leading us in that, 
you're usually back in the sound booth waiting to flip the next slide up there or whatever. So the question I have is, do y'all ever say, man, he must have had a lot of sin to confess today because that was a, a pretty pregnant pause. I, I never do because Jesus said he without sin cast the first stone. Yeah, I've got plenty of stones to build my own house. I don't need to be throwing them at I'm with you in that, but I, I just wonder sometimes how people respond because sometimes when David was here, sometimes he was still having people silently confess their sins, and I'm like, I'm ready to move on. Because <laughs> so I just kind of wondered, you know, behind the curtain, how did that look and how did that come across to, to everybody? Yeah, well, for, for me, it's just uh, paying attention, especially since uh, you kind of help with the live stream and everything else. You want to keep those people engaged. engaged. Right. So, uh, just just paying attention to you know reading the room, uh, reading you know uh, the visual cues and everything else uh, throughout the, the sermon and stuff like that. So y'all, y'all, y'all never put a flashing light that says, "Hey, we've confessed long enough. Let's keep moving." That is true. Yeah. So <laughs> n- none of that is, actually happens behind the scenes. So yeah. So there there you have it. Another glimpse behind the curtain of. Worship here at St. Andrews. So one of the, the great things about the, the meal, though, is not that when we come, we confess our sin. That is a very important part so that we don't come in an unworthy manner. But I think a greater part that tends to get lost is whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're actually saying, Jesus is coming back. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we don't just remember all the things that Jesus did. We don't just remember the things that Jesus is doing in our lives today. We do actually look ahead and say, Jesus will be coming back to uh, bring in and consummate the fullness of the reign of God on earth. You know, answering that prayer that, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We actually look forward to that day and, and, and to try to balance all three of those things. What Jesus did, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus is going to do. This is something that we remember. This is something that we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. This, you know, it's not just a, you know, give me a stale cracker and a little bit of juice to wash it down. That's that's not what it's about. This is something we believe is a sacred and holy time as we encounter the presence of the risen Lord and the ascended Lord in such a way that we look forward to that day when He comes back and we feast at his heavenly banquet table. So here's a question that I I didn't put this in the sermon. It it went through my mind, and I have to confess, I was just a little worried that that asking the question, something might get lost in translation. And so I, I, I do this with some risk, knowing something could get lost in translation. But when I think of the heavenly banquet table, I think, yeah, I said Sunday, I don't know what Jesus is going to have, but it's going to be out of this world, you know, boom, rim shot. But uh, I found myself thinking, if I could only have one more meal, which sounds like I'm on death row, you know, if, if I could only have one more meal to eat, what would I want? For that meal, because that that might influence what I want to find on that heavenly banquet table. If I'm really looking ahead to what Jesus is going to serve, what is Jesus going to serve? So I'm I'm curious if you know if you had a last meal, if, if you knew this is going to be the last meal I ever eat before I go home or Jesus comes back, what would you want to eat? So my last meal is pretty pretty simple. I'm a steak and taters guy. I mean, give me a good, fat, juicy, oh, just a real marked up steak. 
Are we talking like a ribeye or prime rib? As long as it's not like a sirloin, kind of the upper quality meat. Could be a New York strip. Yeah. Could be T-bone, T-bone without. You, oh. And what and what kind of taters are we having? We're having a baked potato? Mass taters. Mass taters. Gravy? Uh, gravy, no gravy. Okay. Cheese, sour cream. Uh, okay. I just say, so, and even when I say gravy, it's the you gravy from the cut of the right. steak, or is it, you know, white country gravy, brown gravy? It doesn't matter. I didn't get this size by not missing meals. So. I, you know, and, and we're sitting here doing this at lunchtime, and I hope people listening are enjoying a good lunch while they're doing this, because we, we get to go at lunch when this is over. So, you know, I, I've thought about this from time to time, and I used to be exactly where you were, a steak and taters guy, and, and maybe I would still, I, I kind of find myself because of my love for um, Mexican food and because of my love for even Chinese food, I, I'm, I'm a shrimp guy. And so I might have to have the surf and, and the turf. Uh, I, I, taters, I, I can do the taters. I, I think I'm going to pass on most of the vegetables because it's yeah, healthy. Last meal I'm going to eat while I'm running on, you know, something that's good for me. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, dessert, would you have dessert? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, no-brainer, brownies. 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 Okay, so do you want them hot out of the oven with a cold dip of vanilla ice cream, or how do you eat your brownies? Uh, any brownies are good brownie, but uh, <laughs> a nice warm brownie, honestly, with a scoop of, like, the homemade vanilla ice cream. Yeah. Like the vanilla bean. That works for you. Uh, it, 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 it works for me, too. Yeah, you get on my good side with the steak, taters, and brownies. You know, oddly enough, I think I'm, I'm typically, I'm not a cookie guy, but I find myself thinking that what I want is either a peach cobbler or a cherry cobbler or a cherry dump cake or something like that. Again, hot with a dip of vanilla ice cream on yes. there and, and, you know, my redneck self would want it in a bowl, not a plate, so I can pick it up and drain all the melted fruit and yes. ice cream and, and <laughs> drain it. I was going to say, we, we need to move on now, don't we? Well, that, that actually brought up a uh, good question. Okay. Uh, we did have a question that was uh, submitted in. Okay. Um, getting back to communion, yes. sharing of meals and the Lord's Supper, why do we, as Methodists, practice open communion? It's an excellent question, and I think there are a couple of different answers to that question. Um, The first one, I'm going to go back to Corinth and what we talked about there, that part of the criticism for them coming in an unworthy manner is they were excluding people, and they were excluding people that were poor. Uh, the, The wealthy among them were eating and drinking, and they were neglecting the others to join in that table fellowship. Uh, and so we believe if Christ is the host, Christ invites everybody. He's going to invite the people that we don't like. He's going to invite people that don't look like us. And we ought to feel pretty good about that because he invites us. And uh, we, we don't come because we're worthy, and we don't come in an unworthy manner. So that, I think, is part one. The other thing is when we look at the gospel narrative of whenever Jesus uh, was instituting the Lord's Supper, one of the things that is easy to overlook is Judas was in there. When he says, this is my body broken for you, Judas is in there. When he says, this is my cup, the blood shed for you, Judas is, is in there. And so if he would include the one who is about to betray him, the one who has no affection for him in his heart at all, to participate in this meal, then again, we see that as evidence that he would invite all people right. to, 
that to participate in that. And so when we do that, we want to say uh, the, the invitation I give is uh, Christ Himself invites all who truly and earnestly repent of their sins and intend to lead a new life in love and charity, following His commands. Draw near by faith, and and we know at that point that people have varying degrees of faith that they have. But we want all people to come, in. and we we realize. And, uh, I haven't said this in years. You might recall I used to say it, Jeff, that if you cannot participate for some reason, we we don't come and ask you about that. We just understand sometimes that's what happens. There are some churches that teach. Uh, you know, not everybody is welcome as the Lord's table. You have to be a member of that church, right? But that also, you shouldn't take communion anywhere else either. And while I don't agree with that particular approach, I do recognize and respect that that's what some people believe. I, I did a wedding years ago, a, a young girl that had grown up uh, in the United Methodist Church. Her dad and I coached softball together, and she was marrying a guy from another Christian tradition. And they wanted communion at their wedding. And so we did the rehearsal, and after rehearsal, a lot of his family members came up and they said, now can we take communion here? I said, I'm going to answer this according to my church, and I'm going to answer it according to the pastor of your church. My church, yes, everybody's welcome to come. Your church, your pastor would probably say, no, don't do that. So right. whatever you all decide will be a matter of your conscience. Yeah, yeah. So... When we talk about the Lord's Supper, we, we understand not everybody agrees the same thing, but one of the things that uh, is it's in one of our liturgies somewhere, it says whenever we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we declare to the world that Christ is coming back again. And I, I love how it says it in our document of understanding of the Lord's Supper. It says in the midst of personal and systemic brokenness in which we live, that, that it, it's saying, we live in a world that is not everything God created it to be, that there's brokenness here. It says we yearn for everlasting fellowship with Christ and fulfillment of the divine plan. In other words, we are looking forward to that day when Christ comes back and we feast at that heavenly banquet table. And until then, we continue to work, we continue to pray, we continue to do the things that we believe that God would have us do. We still have a mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ because some people have not yet made that profession of faith. Some still don't understand. In fact, increasingly in our culture, there are people that are not brought up the way I was brought up where there was a church, and if you live somewhere, you're probably going to go to church. A lot of people are not connected to the church, and the, the church has some... Um, Sometimes we just get a bad reputation, and sometimes it's well-deserved, uh, but we look forward to that day when Christ comes back. And Holy Communion reminds us of all these things. So we're kind of coming to the end of our time. Did you have any other questions or anyone else submit a question? Yeah, we got uh, another question. I know uh, the elements um, throughout the Christian faith, for the most part, stay the same. You have the red. You have the cup of wine as what it dictates in, in the Bible. But for us, and as far as our church, we do not use wine. We use grape juice. Uh, why is it that we use grape juice and not real wine? This is a great question. I actually love this question because there, I, I remember somebody coming to our church when I was in high school, and they said they didn't really have wine that you could get drunk on. Uh, and I'm like, Getting older, I'm reading the Bible, I was like, uh, no, people were getting drunk, otherwise Scripture doesn't talk about it. 
But uh, why do we use grape juice? Well, uh, part of it is out of pastoral care, pastoral concern for alcoholics, and especially those that are in recovery, uh, that if that little sip of wine might cause them to fall off the wagon, we don't want to exclude them from the Lord's table by serving real wine. Uh, There was actually a United Methodist layman back, I believe it was in the, it may have been in the 1800s, but it, it, it may have been in the early 1900s around the period of prohibition is he was a dentist and he wanted to use the pasteurization process of milk on wine to see if he could come up with a non-alcoholic communion wine. Uh, And the name of that uh, dentist happened to be Thomas Bramwell Welch, the guy who invented Welch's grape juice. And so while the kind of bread that we use may vary, you know, we long for the days when we can return to King's Hawaiian. Preach. Uh, <laughs> but uh, whenever I'm buying communion uh, elements, I always buy Welch's because of that. And I don't get, you know, the great value or the always say I always get Welch's grape juice. Well, friends, thanks so much for tuning in today. Wow, I'm looking at this one. We actually kind of fulfilled the time with just me and Jeff talking. Jeff, thanks for your help again, always in this. And uh, we look forward to uh, that day when Pastor Josh can join us together so you're not just having to listen to the sound of my voice. As always, uh, we appreciate you listening. We want to encourage you to submit your questions. If you uh, are able to, we would love to have you worship on site with us. 815 is our traditional service, 930 and 1050 are more modern services. But if that's not a good option for you right now, we just would love you to join us at 815 or 1050 as we Hey friends, D.A. Bennett, St. Andrews Community United Methodist Church. I want you to know that we are discovering some real blessing and benefit of digital discipleship. But we also want to talk to you about subscribing to our YouTube channel. Again, it's under the church's name, and you'll get some different uh, video devotions each day. So if you're looking for another venue, maybe it'll work for you. God bless you.